The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Sex Lives, the New York Magazine sex podcast. I'm David Wallace-Wells, and with me today are Maureen O'Connor, New York's sex columnist. Hey, Maureen. Hey, David. Via Skype from Oakland, Allison Davis of The Cut. Hi, guys. And in a minute, we'll also be joined by Jerry Saltz, New York Magazine's legendary art critic, with whom we'll be talking about sex in museums and maybe also sex in a bunch of other different places. We're also going to be talking about a new study arguing that having more sex may actually make you more miserable, which is probably news to everyone. And we're also going to be talking about some new data from Hinge about just how random someone should be to make for a truly optimal random fuck. All right, on to our first topic, museum sex. A few weeks ago, as part of our Art World pop-up site scene, Jerry Saltz assembled a bunch of reader stories about sex in museums. There was a couple who screwed in every museum they could and filmed it as an art project. There was a husband and wife with a newborn who were so desperate to fuck that they went into a private bathroom and put the baby in her stroller in a stall. Uh, the stories were pretty great. Allison, was there one that stuck out to you? I also liked the the parents in the, with the infant in the stall, but I also really enjoyed the guy who just went and masturbated after he saw an exhibit. I just like the the solo mission, you know. And, and it, so it was moved. it was presented like it was a compliment to the art, really. Right. <laughs> but the exhibit, he just had to masturbate. I loved that. And Jerry, I wanted to ask you before we got into talking in too much detail, what sort of inspired this project? How'd you come to it? I think I came to it in my own fantasy life back in the 80s, and even when I was younger. Museums used to be very sexy, quiet places. You'd be alone. You'd be, like, very turned on by all these paintings, especially all the nudies. And then you start to notice, boy, I'm standing next to this person looking at, like, a uh, people having intercourse right here. And then way back in the 80s, I followed this woman around the Picasso Museum in Paris, the old one. And I was, I mean, I've never put off the sex vibe. (laughs) And I was sure this was going to work out, but then uh, just like in Dress to Kill, Brian De Palma's thing, it didn't. In any event, I started thinking about it again with the Whitney. I love the new Whitney, and the spaces are kind of beautiful and uh, open and empty. And I fell asleep there the other day. And I'm, I really, I slept the sleep of the dead. And when I woke up, it wasn't like morning wood, but it was but more close. like, what? But, <laughs> but close. close. <laughs> but close. I was around people. I had been in this weird state, and I started to wonder are people thinking about this? Do they do it? I feel like there's something kind of sexy about also when you're looking at something together, you're having the same sort of feelings or something connected in a way, which in the same way that when you have sex, you're simultaneously enjoying a pleasure together and yet also completely internally and separately within your own mind, you know? So it's like I see, you know, what you mean, Jerry, when you're talking yeah. about, say, looking at Picasso's with this woman and feeling like there's some connection between you, but also the sort of mystery of how much. Wow, that's cool. The one thing I was amazed at also is how much fingering is going on in museums. Uh And I also don't think museums are having sex in public at all. I never was looking for that. It never Mm -hmm. occurred to me to do it in public. It was always in the bathroom. Ah. And in a way, while we're talking about it, it doesn't sound that sexy to me. It's funny because I definitely noticed myself, say, you know, if I go to a gallery or museum with a guy... And, of course, you know, there'll be some moment he's looking at art and I come up and, like, you know, get kind of snuggly. See? And it's interesting because I didn't thought about it necessarily of an attention thing, 
although maybe it is on some level. It is. But what I do think is, I think the sort of, to me, the metaphor that makes a lot of sense would be like if you're watching a movie with somebody, you kind of snuggle in with them. And it's the feeling of we're doing this together. Let's put our attention on one thing together for a moment. And then it's sort of a shared experience. I agree. I think like there's art is sensual and sharing that experience with another person, of course, is like a you're on the same wavelength and you're sharing something that's centrally appealing. So I, I get why it would turn you on. Also, there's that element of being an exhibitionist on those couches. And if you're sitting next to someone staring at a view and there's no one around, like how can you resist just like making out a little bit and seeing where that goes, I guess? I don't wow. know. Especially if you can sort of hear some people shuffling in the room behind you. Yeah. It's like it's you're, so you're, you're both sort of discreet and sort of... Yeah, like, the private the public sim- simultaneity, I think, hmm. is the sexiness there. I think when I'm looking at art, I'm all in on the art. So I don't think it's like a movie. I don't think it's mm. something you're doing together. Ah, I actually think you might be standing there together, but you are no longer with that person. So, Jerry, when you're seeing a show with your wife, you don't actually interact with her? Yeah, we talk, but I never think we're in the same hot, erotic zone together. I think it's incredibly mm. autonomous. Oh, so I guess that's why that, that one gentleman chose to masturbate instead of having sex with someone after after yeah. the exhibit. Yeah. You know, the funniest thing about that is when I read that one, all of a sudden I realized this bizarre sort of logical flaw perhaps I have in that public sex is sort of seems like hot and fun and wild to me. Public masturbation or even if that's not necessarily public, public, but something about masturbating seems so much dirtier or like looter, yeah. doesn't it? Totally. Yeah, uh, although a man doing it out there, bad. A woman doing it out there, very interesting. Yeah. Why? Just because it's hot to you? <laughs> no, no. I think first yeah. of all, you just be like, what the fuck? I've never, yeah. like, I've never come across. Uh, yeah. What Women fan don't just of, Have you ever like done that in public? In public? No. I mean, I where, where it's not under a table <laughs> or quietly. Extravagantly. Extravagantly? No, although I've definitely wondered when I've had like the windows open and stuff. If like, have I don't you, know. Have I you really had sex? What's going on. Have you had sex in public? Yes, I have. But uh, in an exhibitionist way, yeah. or uh, more <laughs> like here we are on the beach. I'll put a towel over us and boink. Um, <laughs> maybe a little of both, but I think that some. I mean, the fun of when you're being discreet about it is a little bit of the exhibitionist thrill, right? Even though no one's theoretically watching you or theoretically you're hiding, but there's still the element of like being exposed to the open and a little bit of the thrill of maybe somebody will see us. David, have you? <laughs> totally, yeah. I yeah. think I've had sex in museums too, although probably only in locked bathrooms. You know what? I've only ever, you know, I haven't fully Wait. had oh. sex in museums. Yeah. But sculpture gardens are like such a what did you do in sexy a outdoorsy thing. Um, well, I grew up in Minneapolis, so there were several sort of halfway done hand jobs at the Walker Art Center's sculpture wow. garden. <laughs> that counts. This is where the, um, the, the, the angsty teens of Minneapolis go to smoke half a joint and give half a blowjob. Blow <laughs> no, not blowjobs, hand jobs, really. Wow. Over the sweater action. And I went on a date to Storm Gang a few weeks ago. And, like, and? One thing led to another. Some, you know, there was, you know, but we didn't fully, because there are too many damn children in that place. <laughs> like, but, you can't but, get anything really done. Oh, but, but there's yeah. so many hidden areas at there, Well, King. that's some of the fun. We did not get through anything. Wait, I Allison, say, Allison, do you have any particular recommendations <laughs> yeah. you'd like to pass along? What's, what's down by the water where there's that cool, like, statue and the, the mermaid statue? There are lots of places to hide oh. and, like, do whatever you want to do. 
Oh, it sounds like you're speaking from experience, Allison. Still pleading the fifth, guys. (laughs) (laughs) David, where, what museum? Tell me the sex, please. You know, I started dating the person who's now my wife when she was in college. She worked at the museum at her college. Definitely did it there. Boom. Um... I think in a couple of places in like Paris. Like in a gallery or in a bathroom? Oh, just locked, like in the locked ah. bathroom. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, I think like in a gallery, like on a bench in the middle of a big room is like a, a bridge too far. Well, also they're me. like yeah. cameras everywhere, you know? That's, <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, I got a blowjob in a, um, a museum library. I was the uh, night librarian and ah. uh, I locked the door. So it wasn't in public. Do libraries even count as like an exciting no. public place? I it's feel essentially like it's, a porn set, right? Yeah, yeah. basically. <laughs> don't touch anything. It's covered in semen. <laughs> well, it, in, in one of the stories in the collection that Jerry put together, there, um, somebody described, I think, an African art department as being especially erotic. Do we think that there's art that's like especially hot or especially suited to public fucking? I get turned on a lot by, uh, this is how dis, you know perverse I am, the paint <laughs> <laughs> in Fragonard and Boucher. Those guys are the Rococo painters right mm-hmm. before the revolution. And they do paint things like women alone uh, in a bed, sort of pu- uh, naked, pushing their pudenda on the uh, uh, sheets mm-hmm. or holding a doggy up with the dog's tail wagging between their legs. And uh, this is the stuff the aristocracy was looking at. So it's the actual, the sort of the imagery, the erotic imagery, high-end porn. Yeah, it's high-end porn. Have you ever masturbated to uh, a reproduction of a work of art, hmm. not a photograph? No. I can't say I have, no. I think we may be too young. We're all like in a video era. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen all art that way. Have you, Jerry? Yeah. When I was really young, like 13, 14, 15, I don't remember. We did, if I couldn't find my father's Playboy. Uh Or the joy uh, of sex, I guess, was like drawings. That counts, right? Yes. That would be good. I've definitely done that. I haven't done that. (laughs) But no, uh, there was a great painting by Angra. I-N-G-R-E-S. Like people Uh Googling right now. (laughs) It's called The Turkish Bath. And I think it was the only time I had ever seen a picture of a vagina Mm. at that time and it seemed so realistic and i thought oh i'm going for this this is my life yeah calling Uh to you yeah yeah and what about contemporary art who's the artist who did the the video i'm getting fucked by my dealer or whatever oh alex mcquilkin uh is putting on her makeup looking directly in a camera but her head's kind of bouncing back and forth and if you look out of the out of focus field there's a man boinking her from behind maureen is there like contemporary art that's like done it for you um i can't think of any when i think of sort of like things that cause a sort of sexiness it's usually for me sort of like the shared space and shared experience with like a person um ick (laughs) (laughs) I recall once browsing around sort of like porny video whatnot and finding this um, sort of genre of porn in which people take cuttings from um, actual movies, like the sex scenes in movies. And I remember thinking that that was so much hotter than actual porn. You know, movies going back through the decades. I mean, I guess there's an element of realism to it and there's something a little bit sort of more beautiful to it. And it's really about sensuality as opposed to just like raw fucking I remember that being sort of like, oh, that's sort of a directly sexualized use of something that was 
sexual in the service of something else being art when it was created. There is a great site which uh, depicts porn films that have famous paintings in the background. So ah. there's, I just saw a picture of um, Guernica, Picasso's great anti-war painting that's wow. in Spain uh, of this, well, it doesn't matter what the people were doing. Well, this is, a, <laughs> it is a sex podcast, but anyway, all but it I seems was... Like that's, to me, that's a painting that suggests an orgy rather than like a one-on-one encounter. Yeah. No, boy, you're totally right. Yeah, well, good so point. Ben, first of all, it's like... <laughs> yeah. Good point. Did you guys read that survey a little bit ago that was on Artnet News that uh, like art students have more sex than any other major in college. So wow. I just feel like there's um, there's like an open-mindedness to the kinds of people who are going to art and engaging with art. That means you're just going to fuck more than the average person. So maybe that's, that's part of it. I don't totally. know. And they do more drugs. They do more drugs, yeah. Art students are just cooler than the rest of us in general, I guess. This is true. I also feel like when you're like 18 years old and working on art, the great thing you have to draw from is pretty much just your angst and your horniness, right? <laughs> like they must be thinking about it all the time. Not just when you're it's 18, always been my think. gloss on that. I guess true of everyone, but they're fully engaged with it in a way that you know the kid studying math perhaps is not. You guys are really smart. I have a theory that there are music prodigies, math prodigies, but there are no cooking prodigies and no art prodigies. What about Picasso? Why is that? I'll explain. Oh. You cannot be a great artist or a cook until you know death and sex. You have to know both. Picasso had all this talent as a kid. 12, 13 years old, he was painting the crap out of things, but he had no subject matter, no originality. He's taken to the uh, bordellos, uh, the whorehouses in Barcelona, and you can see it like the next day. He paints a great picture owned by the Met of him getting a blowjob. I love that photo. That's the blue one, right? Yes. Yeah, I love that, that painting. That's kind of astonishing. And so I think sex and death and cooking and art are mingled. I want to ask Jerry one more question. Please. If you were to rank sort of some of the top picks around the world, the best museums for getting horny, where would they be? Do you, do you have any top locations. I will I will now never go back to the Walker Sculpture Garden. (laughs) (laughs) As soon as you graduate from school, you save your money, you fly to Madrid, you stay in a shithole. I don't care how tired you are. Then you go to the Prado. The Prado will erase everything you know. It will rejigger you and it is hot. It is hot. It's the most intense encounter with paintings to be had anywhere in the West. But do the bathrooms lock? It's Europe, so, you know, (laughs) they have men and women are going to the bathroom together, which means I can't go to the bathroom in Europe. (laughs) Incidentally, I'm too much thinking about, God, there's a woman there, and I'm listening to this, and and this is too good. So if you you listeners have any suggestions for where we should go, uh, let us know. Tweet us at The Cut. And we've been talking about museum sex, which you can read more about on Scene, which is New York Magazine's art site, at vulture.com slash art. And please, for Jerry's sake, uh, email more stories of your own encounters to sexinmuseums at nymag.com. So thanks, Jerry, for chatting. But I think you're going to stick around, right, for the next couple. That was the best uh, 15 minutes I've had in, in <laughs> years. I'm Other staying. than the blowjob, right? Uh, well, <laughs> at that time, it was less than 15 minutes. <laughs> 
So let's move on to our next subject, which is whether fucking more actually makes you miserable. This comes from a new Carnegie Mellon study that sort of exploded the internet when it came out. Maureen, did you want to tell us a little bit more about it? I know you were interested in this. Right. So the headlines sort of all over the place where more sex makes you miserable, too much sex with your significant other will make you sad, as often occurs, not quite accurate. But what was found was that um, a group at Carnegie Mellon University got 128 healthy, happy couples and told half of them double the amount of sex you have each week. However much sex they were already having, half of them had to double it to see if it would make them happier. Were they already selected to be people who had or who were having a certain amount of sex or were they all over the spectrum? They were all over the spectrum. And the funny thing, now this is one of the few times that I've seen an academic sort of openly say, the findings were a surprise and a disappointment, said George Lowenstein, the um, the lead professor who worked on this. We were expecting that the people who had more sex would enjoy it a lot and would be happier and that it would be good for their relationship. Instead, what we found was that the group who had more sex enjoyed it less, they wanted it less, and they reported lower levels of happiness overall. Now, there is a lot of consistent research, as Lowenstein and his and everyone he worked with point out, that shows that the desire to have sex decreases much more quickly than the enjoyment of sex in a relationship, which means that people are less likely to initiate it. But if they did initiate it, they probably would be enjoying it, and they enjoy it more than they think they will when they're in a relationship. However, they're finding that it made people more miserable to be fucking at double the rate. What they think is that it was actually because people felt sort of rote and obligated to do it. They were sort of consistently saying, oh, it's kind of exhausting to have to do this thing for this study. This study is a drag. What's interesting is that there have been so many um, sort of self-help books lately. And there was even there was a there was a megachurch pastor who offered told everybody to try the seven days of sex challenge in his in his church. There have been books, you know, advising people to try to have sex every day for a year. It'll reignite your passion. And what this study suggests is that actually just feeling like you need to do it actually won't make the sex work out. And sort of what, the opposite, really. Right. Yeah. And so what Lowenstein said, he said, well, you know, if we could have if we could do the study again, I think maybe I would advise people to, you know, double the amount of sex you have each week, but do something sexy. He suggested going to a hotel, Egyptian sheets. I don't understand why the sheets would make it so much sexier. <laughs> What's but, you an know, Egyptian sheet? Or Egyptian cotton sheets. Excuse oh, me. I thought it's an quality. Egyptian yes. sheep. No. Is that sexier than like a flannel sheet? <laughs> that would be more more thrilling. Um <laughs> It's interesting because the research just suggests that sort of feeling like we need to have more sex to fix our relationship actually won't get you there. You need to, in order for sex to actually create the level of enjoyment that people often report having from it, you have to find a way to want it or be thrilled by it. But there was also buried in this study this idea of reverse causality, the suggestion that maybe it's not the sex that's making people happy. It's that happier people are just boning more. Right. So that's also fascinating that they pointed out sex and happiness usually are correlated. When people are having a lot of sex, you know, they say we're having a lot of sex and I'm really happy. And so what they what they suggested was that perhaps there's a reverse causality there, that when people are really happy, they end up having more sex. When you have a really great relationship, you're having a lot of sex. Not that it goes the other way. It's not a sort of one-two path that as soon as you start having the sex, you end up happy. And do, do we think like it's like a straight one-to-one correlation, like up and to the right, the more sex that we have, the happier we are? Or is there is there actually a point outside of a study environment when like your added value is going down? Am I speaking in too much economic terms? No, I suppose, um, <laughs> well, when you reach the level of sex addiction or when you're, yeah. when you're having so much sex that you're not getting your groceries and you're very hungry all of a sudden. Or your apartment's really messy because you're just 
neglecting everything to fuck. I think that's a problem. I've yeah, always... and then your sheets are all dirty and you don't have any new <laughs> sheets because you haven't done your laundry. But Egyptian don't... cotton can't save you. I know, the Egyptian cotton, not enough. But don't you guys think that that's like... Uh... <laughs> That's like the problem is then your like housekeeping skills more than like your <laughs> sex life. I don't know. I've always thought that like, you know, I'm, there is a whole like body of research about sex addiction and how it's legitimate and real. But it always just seemed to me these people are like they have problems that are totally independent of their sex lives, which is that like they can't they're not loyal. They don't you know, whatever they they want to throw everything in their life away for a single leg. Well, the sex is the manifestation of various problems in the same way that drinking a lot is often a sort of manifestation of something right. emotionally difficult or, you know, behavioral problem. I mean, I think any time a behavior is thwarting to the things you need to do in your life, it can be bad. And in that sense, too much sex can be a bad thing. It seems to me also that the study is uh, flawed just in its outlook, that you have people happy doing mm-hmm. something the way they do it and then you want to break that it'd be like saying jerry you um write three times a week you love it right yes now try to double that it connects to something that maureen was talking about which is the observation that researchers made or researchers in the past have made that people enjoy sex more than they expect to so especially in long-term relationships you're saying they often like won't initiate sex but when they do they really love it so there's a sort of like, you know, it's healthy to break that pattern and to push. No, I think I think that's a good point. And I think what Jerry said is also a great point that we sort of assume, like, if you're not getting laid a lot, get laid more, you'll like it. That's not always, you know, like if you, you like to eat, you don't double the amount you eat and expect it. Right. But it is true that that um, sort of as sexlessness creeps into a relationship, if it does, usually both parties, when they actually do have sex, they like it more than they think they're going to. And their their desire to initiate is what drops off faster than the actual desire to have sex itself. Yet again, we just return to perhaps foreplay and various sexy attitudes are the way to get somebody to have the type of sex they actually enjoy. Uh, And uh, pot. (laughs) (laughs) We can just list everything that Jerry finds sexy now. (laughs) What else, Jerry? (laughs) And I guess there are also all these people who, like, are just uncomfortable about sex and who are probably not having sex because it freaks them out in one way or another. I think we all go through some period of that. It can go for a day. It could go mm-hmm. for a week. It, I was single once for two years and for the first year I don't think I had sex and I was not unhappy. It was not on my right. mind until it was on my stupid mind and then it was back <laughs> on. Oh yeah. yeah. There are just like periods of celibacy where you're just not interested in sex and yeah, forcing yourself, happier. forcing yourself to do it during those times, I would imagine, is sort of the thing that's sort of, you know, it's it's about whatever the spark, what sparks it again. And I suppose that's the uh, the more difficult thing to measure and study is which are the sparks that work and why. It's also interesting the way that this study was received so without skepticism by the internet. I mean, this this is what's interesting about this, um, this Professor Lowenstein, because he was so sort of vocal at telling people again and again and again, it doesn't mean that more sex makes you unhappy. What it actually means is that compulsory sex turns people off way more than we thought. And that wasn't actually the conventional wisdom given all these sort of self-help guides. I think first it was counterintuitive to a lot of bloggers, writers. Um, And then there was something also about a sort of glee of like, oh yeah, you want to be so mean about my sexless relationship? Well, guess what? It's fine. Um, Which was (laughs) sort of the running theme I found every time I was reading about it in various sort of magazines, websites and things. I actually think it's a sick American formula. Uh Like, uh, this is good, do it more. Do it better. You could do it this. The obesity epidemic of compulsory sex. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I'm also curious is like 
is compulsory sex something that happens outside of a study? Like, does this study have any lessons <laughs> beyond the study itself? Um, maybe because like, think about after a breakup, you know, like sometimes you're, you've gone without sex for a while and you're like, I just have to fuck You're like, someone. tonight I'm, I'm not going to go home alone. Right. I'm not yeah. going home with a pizza tonight. I'm going to fuck a man no matter who. <laughs> and then like, does that make you happy? I don't know. The pizza might have been the better choice. It, it was funny because as soon as I read this and I was like, that can't be true, you know, and I so like refuse on some level deep down to admit that this could possibly be true. And yet I am such a proponent of, say, when you're single, I'm always a person that's, you know, throwing my newly single girlfriends at guys and be like, you just have to get the momentum running. You just have to do it. I think what Alice and I are actually doing right now is having a proxy fight about the ways to be single because yes. I'm perpetually telling her to just give it a shot and go for it. Well, yes, I have tried your <laughs> method though, I will say. And it, it, it didn't work out for me. So you would say that for you, compulsory sex did not work. Right. It needs to be like organic and exciting, but you know, just swiping right on some guy and having him come over at like midnight doesn't always feel so great. Well, I'm not like, necessarily telling you to bring randos into your home because I don't know if that's always safe, but no. <laughs> um, so my theory is that um, when it comes to particularly dating, you just need your momentum going because as soon as you start feeling like I'm desirable, then you just start giving off vibes to the world that's like you walk into a party and you're like, I am a hot bitch that can pick a dude up whenever she wants. And then you are that girl. This is why I'm so ruthless about telling everybody it doesn't even matter. The first couple of dates you go on aren't going to be the person you're going to fall back in love with as soon as you're single, maybe. But um, I always think that momentum gets going. And similarly, in a relationship, I suppose there are various ways you can get the momentum moving again um, that aren't just, we must have sex. Once we start doing it, we will eventually feel it. That like fake it till you make it thing, what we learned from the Lowenstein studies, that fake it till you make it doesn't necessarily always work with sex. This sort of segues into our next subject, which is um, sex with randos. Um, <laughs> So we've just been talking for a little while about whether um, more sex might actually make you less happy. And I think we basically decided that it, it doesn't. Now, let's talk about this um, this information from Hinge, which is one of these dating sites, Jerry, um, where you swipe about how close people like to be to the people they're actually matching with. The shtick with Hinge is that it's like Tinder, but instead of just giving you everyone, they give you people that are connected to you through your Facebook friends. So it'll say who your Hinge is. You know, you guys both have this one mutual friend or maybe you're, you know, several degrees apart and you don't have any mutual friends. So what Hinge ended up doing was measuring how much people sort of swipe right, which is, you know, expressing interest based on how connected they were. Well, they measured up to sort of four degrees of separation or further, and they found that women were much more likely to be saying yes to people that were closer to them and that they were less than four degrees of separation. Second and third degree connections are two times and three times as likely to like each other to both swipe right than randoms they found. And then women were five times more likely to swipe right on someone they were connected to. So that sort of effect, it turns out that it's about the three degrees of separation. That's your optimal sense of, hey, this feels like the right person for me, but they're not so far away that they're terrible random people. And Allison, you think everybody wants to fuck random people, right? Well, I mean, if we're talking just like straight fucking and not thinking about this person for a relationship or whatever, fucking randoms is really an attractive thing to do, right? Because you can be whoever you want to be. You can get as weird as you want it to be. It could be a complete disaster and no one in your friend circle will ever find out. I think there's something really freeing about just like finding a random who you think is attractive and probably not a total serial killer and, and going for it. 
in my sense, is exactly if you're swiping right five times more on people you're very connected to, that doesn't sound like random sex to me. That sounds like not random, that you're actually looking for a relationship. Exactly. Well, or you're excited to screw around with people who you've, like, crossed paths with and had some sexual charge with when you've seen them before, you know, like... I can go for that. Yeah. It makes sense. I mean, there's, well, on one hand, this is, of course, a self-selecting group. It's people who downloaded the app Hinge specifically so they could date people and know how, you know, tied they were to them. So those are probably people that aren't, you're not using that app to find necessarily totally random, no it's strings not attached list. sex. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or, or Tinder. Or Tinder. I mean, it's funny to me, though, because even when it just comes to dating, I think I would always rather sort of date somebody that is just totally a new, fresh start. And I don't like dating people that I'm too tied to. I don't even necessarily like meeting someone at a party and starting dating them. Like, I'm always wary of that sort of situation. Why so? Because the feeling of social entanglement, I think, is something that stresses me out. Oh, God, I'm going to keep running into this person all the time. If it doesn't work out, maybe they're going to have exes I know. And But then again, you're somebody who wants to set up an ex-boyfriend swap. Yeah, I know. I am. <laughs> I'm such a raging hypocrite, really. But, you know, in, in the defense of people who like the third degree or the the closer degree and isn't it kind of fun to be able to ask your friend like oh i matched with this person how are they in right bed? Or, like have you heard anything about them like how's his dick that's a question how's right. his dick what does that mean um this is a question <laughs> I, you know what i'm setting up wait wait a minute what does that mean how's his dick if it's a good uh, dick or a bad dick, is it big or small? How hard be? does it get? No, what does he do with it? <laughs> does he know what to do with it? Yeah. There's something Alice and I are actually setting up. Um, yeah, this can be a sneak preview for our listeners. No, I'm trying to set up an ex-boyfriend swap, much like a clothing swap, because I was thinking, you know, all these gently used dates who or Date, hookups. Dates is a euphemism. Is um, yeah. yeah, really hookups. <laughs> um, but, you know, he was cool. He was fun. But we didn't work out for a variety of reasons. You know, I'll pass him over to this friend of mine who I think is great. So I'm trying to set this up now. Um, I set Allison up with two. She hasn't gone on her um, dates with my two, those two guys yet. I was going to say, but it was kind of fun, even if a little creepy for me to be like, oh, so what is this guy's deal? Like, yeah. how is he in bed? Is he going to be all emotional? Or like, what's his, you know, it was, it was yeah. a nice conversation. But then I talked about it with a, another friend and they were mm-hmm. like, isn't it weird having like a like a sex partner in common like that with a close friend. I don't know. Is it weird for you? Would that be is that weird for you, Maureen? No, you know, I was thinking about this recently because I've done that before. Um, recently, I saw a guy who basically had, like flirted with and was eh, I don't know. I didn't feel that much about it. But one of my friends was like, "Do it. He's great." And I was like, "What? <laughs> really? You hooked up with him?" Um, and then I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll give it. And I was so curious. And part of the curiosity was not just that he had a good recommendation, but I was like, well, I want to see what this girl thinks is good, you know? Do I agree with her? Do we have the same taste? I'm so curious. And I think that's some of the fun of comparing notes. I will say, say when it comes to Hinge, the people I know who have really liked this are people who are more looking for relationships or dates. And they're people who maybe maybe going on a date is a little more of a struggle, that they're less the sort of the way Alice and I are like, what the hell, go on it, Um, that they want to make sure that they're going to go on a date with somebody they like. They're going to feel bad if they go on a date with someone shitty. And a lot of people do feel that way. And so that sort of it gives them a little sense of like, this is somebody who's a little bit overlap in my world. I can check in, you know, hey, Maureen is friends with him too. Maureen, what's he like? Oh, my God, he cheated on his last 
five girlfriends. You're somebody who really, really will be hurt by that. Look out. You know, that kind of thing. Or he's got a bad dick. Or he's got a bad dick. Well, is it is it crazy of me to say that it's weird that you expect that a dude is going to be the same with every girl that he fucks? No, that's the thing. That's He'll be different. Oh, yeah. This is the other right. thing that's also that's a little a insulting point. in some way because then totally. there's the element of like <laughs> yeah. hooking up with somebody. Like we're just robots? <laughs> yeah, what do Basically. you think? Our dicks wow. could be better machines. with you. Well, no, it's kind of weird because then <laughs> there was a time that I had a hookup in common with this other girl, um, an old friend of mine, and I remember being like, God, this guy's great. And she was like, oh, terrible. And then there was this element that I was like, so do I have lower standards than you do? Or is he better when he's with me? But the unspoken dynamic, I think, was that there was some element of her wanting to be like, oh, God, Maureen's got low standards. And there's some element of me being like, Guys don't try that hard when they're around you. This is a very catty, catty (laughs) (laughs) subtext I'm describing. I hate this. Um, No, but I don't feel that way, Allison. I do not feel competitive. No matter what happens, it's going to be okay. You're going to go on two dates with these guys. Swap, Maureen. (laughs) Um, But the other funny thing is that what I'm also excited to see is one of the girls who's setting me up with a guy was like, well, Maureen, you're like higher energy than me. This guy was like off the charts high energy. You know, I'm too laid back for that. So we're trying to do a swap. I don't know. I feel like I'm going to find out a lot about these friends of mine too and Allison you're probably going to find out a lot about me given the nature of the recommendation I give and then that and you're going to say oh like that's the guy Maureen thinks is so funny and now you're going to see what that's like (laughs) like how bad your taste is is that what you're saying (laughs) (laughs) so we've been talking about uh, sex with randos and also it's kind of opposite the ex-boyfriend swap that's coming down the pike Um, that's it for Sex Lives this week thanks so much to Jerry Saltz in particular for being our guest yeah thank you Jerry awesome to be here I'll be here anytime (laughs) begging it it. our producer is Sam Dingman thanks also to Henry Malofsky and Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers for Allison Davis and Maureen O'Connor and Jerry Saltz this time I'm David Wallace-Wells we'll talk to you next time and thanks so much for listening 